My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for our church. And please pardon me, uh, but this morning I'm, I'm fighting a, a cold, so that might uh, come up through the time. Martin Luther wrote one of the most famous hymns of all time. You may have heard of it, called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in one of the verses, the English translation says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. How have you experienced this world with devils filled? Perhaps you could come up here this morning and share a story of your chronic suffering, battling with the reality of life in a fallen world with your decaying flesh. Perhaps others of you could tell of an enemy who consistently or aggressively has attacked you and sought to wear you down. Maybe a neighbor who doesn't mind irking you, or an abuser who was never caught. Or maybe others of you find yourself perpetually stuck in a no-win situation, one that doesn't especially encourage your faith in Christ. Perhaps it's a workplace filled with gossip and backbiting and envy and political maneuvering. Or it could be a college major that expects intelligent people to simply assume a bias against anything supernatural, such as creation or miracles or the divine authorship of the Bible. How do you feel when you face these trials time and again? When you come face to face with the world, with your fallen nature, or with the devil? Would you like these things to go away? Does it seem to you like God is distant? Does God even care? Or will God have his way with these things? Our text this morning addresses these very questions. We will begin our way through the book of Exodus. As we study this, we start this morning on chapter 1. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 29. All the way back near the beginning of the Bible. We'll see how God enables his people to be fruitful and to multiply even through incredible hardship. Last week, Bill explained for us the main point of Exodus that we're framing as a question out of chapter 5. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And before we can ask or answer that question, we need a bit of drama. God must create a climate of hostility to his purposes So that we'll want to ask this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey? In fact, we'll need to ask this question. And I trust you'll see what to do in those situations when enemies crop up from all sides. What do we do when this world with devils filled threatens to undo us? Let us prepare for these trials by agreeing together to hold fast to three commitments. You can see them on your outline. We will not fear death. We tremble not for the prince of darkness. 
and we can endure his rage. Let me pray, and then I'll read the first paragraph as we study the passage. Father in heaven, please grant us insight and illumination by the power of your spirit as we read your word. Lord, we want to know you. Help us to understand these commitments that you've given us by your strength and your grace as we face this world and the devils in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 1, I'll start with verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Our first commitment is that we will not fear death because the first way this present evil age threatens to undo us is through the passing of time and the fact of death. Death entered the world when the first man and woman disobeyed God. In Genesis 1, God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, but by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, they decided to go their own way and be their own gods. So we must acknowledge that according to God's design, death is not natural. It's not the way he created the world to be. Death is unnatural. That's why death causes us so much pain. It gets in the way of our plans. And in Exodus 1, death tries to get in the way of God's plans for his people. Verse 1 of this chapter picks up right where the book of Genesis left off, with a generation of God's people in Egypt. This family found a home there to escape a worldwide famine, and they ended up staying in Egypt the rest of their days. We're given the names of Jacob's 12 sons, but the the main point of tension, the main idea of the paragraph comes in verse 6, which is that Joseph died and all his brothers And all that generation. This is the first point of tension in the story. Because God made incredible promises to this family. God promised that this family would become a great nation. And they would settle in their own rich land. And they would become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And yet here they are, dying off. And suffering the effects of a fallen world. Will this get in the way of God's promises? Aren't these the great and mighty patriarchs to whom the promises were made? If they die, how can they be fruitful and multiply like God commanded them to be? How can they fulfill God's purposes in creating them from the very beginning? And so verse 7 tells us, starts off with this, but, despite this fact of death, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Now in that verse, the Hebrew phrase for people of Israel is identical to the phrase that was used in verse 1 
which was translated sons of Israel. See, the narrator wants us to know that even though this is a new generation with a different set of individual members, it is still the same people. It is the same set of sons to whom God made these marvelous promises. God's sons will live out God's purposes to bear fruit and to multiply. And so they multiply and they grow exceedingly strong so that the land is filled with them. The point is this. Death cannot stop the progress of God's purposes. How does this apply for us? Friends, don't fear death. Don't fear death. Though it will come and haunt us, death has always been around. And it will continue to be around as long as we live in this present evil age. The people we love and trust and rely on for wisdom and counsel and friendship, they will all die someday. We will eventually go without our grandparents. And then we will go without our parents. And we will go without our counselors. And we will go without our friends. Some will seem to die before their time. We will face unexpected tragedies as a church. Sometimes our children will precede us in facing death. And then there are others who may appear to cheat death for a time. But all will fall prey to this great enemy. Death will continue to dog us and get in our way as long as we draw breath under the sun. But though death will always be right around the corner, it cannot stop the progress of God's plans for his people. The church will continue. The gospel will go forth. More nations must be reached. More disciples must be made. More songs must be sung. More worship must be offered to the only one to have faced death and conquered it, returning to tell us about it, Jesus Christ. Sometimes death just forces the next generation to step up and take on the mission sooner than they would prefer. How might God have you serve the body or take on more leadership for the good of others. Please don't rest on the fact that we already have some leaders. We will always need more because death will come and haunt us. We need more shepherds and shepherdesses who can disciple others. We need more growth group leaders. We need more Sunday school teachers. We need more worship leaders and more preachers. We need more help. Death is not fun. Death is not easy. Death is not normal. It is not natural. It will never feel right. If you've been to a funeral that made you sadder than you thought you could be, you understand what I mean. My first run-in with death came around the age of eight or nine when my mom's mom died of cancer. I didn't want to go up to the casket during the viewing because I could tell from afar, even at that age, that the corpse in that box was not the same person I had loved. Such moments sear themselves on our memories and leave scars on our souls that may never heal. But we need never fear death. We can still be fruitful and multiply and promote God's kingdom in the earth. Now, if only death were our worry, 
If that was all the world had to offer, life wouldn't be too hard. It would be hard, but there's, in fact, more to worry us. There's much, much more. So we move on in the passage to the second section. We tremble not for the prince of darkness, because the second way the world threatens to undo us, the first way was through death, but the second way is through the agents of the enemy of all that is good and holy. This is why Martin Luther's song qualifies this world as being with devils filled. Because there is a real enemy. There is an accuser of the brethren. The great dragon, the serpent of old, prowling about like a lion seeking prey to devour. And the moment we deny his existence, we consign ourselves to incredible failure and unnecessary suffering. But acknowledging his existence is not enough. We must also understand his motives and know what to expect. Because Satan, the ultimate prince of darkness, wants to take you out of the picture. He doesn't want you to bear fruit for the Lord. He doesn't want you to be encouraged in your calling before God. He wants you to second-guess yourself. He wants you to doubt God's clear promises and commands. And he seeks these ends through lies, deceit, shrewd dealings, and masterful manipulation. Primarily, he works through his agents who live in his shadow, those who represent his nefarious purposes. And in the Bible, none of those agents is more clear than the Pharaoh of Egypt who opposed God and his people and everything they stood for. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So we see in verse 8, a new king arises over Egypt who does not know Joseph. And make no mistake, this phrase, does not know Joseph, it cannot mean that he's never heard of Joseph before. Joseph was a national hero who rescued the entire known world from the certain death of a seven-year famine. Joseph was responsible for securing the entire land of Egypt into the personal possession of the pharaoh of his day. And the entire Egyptian populace voluntarily placed themselves in servitude to Pharaoh in exchange for unblighted grain. And they loved Joseph for it. They praised him for giving giving them back their lives. Joseph was a big deal, celebrated in the nation and recorded in the annals. And no king within a century or two could avoid having heard of him. Make no mistake, this king who did not know Joseph means not that this new king was ignorant. It means that he was insolent. Possibly he resented having a foreigner be so popular among generations of Egyptian citizens. Perhaps he thought it more manly or more royal or simply more Egyptian to grab for power, hold on tight, and show the world how tough you are. We don't know for sure what all his motives were, except for the following. But we do know he did not want to walk in the way of Joseph. 
He did not know Joseph's ways. He didn't agree with them. He did not walk according to them. We know three things about his motives. First, he was insecure. He was insecure. Look at verse 9. He sees this people group within his borders, and what he sees when he looks at them is a force too mighty to reckon with. They are too many and too mighty for us. So if we don't make the first move, we'll end up losing out. He is insecure. Second, he was afraid. Verse 10, his biggest fear is that they will multiply and then they will join his enemies in a conflict and escape from the land. So he doesn't really want them there, outnumbering his own people, but he doesn't want to lose them either. He's afraid of what's going to happen here. He's insecure, he's afraid. And third, he was sneaky. He was sneaky. The beginning of verse 10, we see that he doesn't have the courage to confront his fears and insecurities. He's not willing to work out a solution agreeable to all parties. He wants to deal shrewdly with them. You see then verse 10? Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest these things happen. He will go behind their backs. He will ensnare them and use them for his own purposes. Now, the rest of the chapter details for us Pharaoh's three main attempts to attack God's people and prevent them from multiplying. We'll get to those tactics shortly. But here, let's be clear on Pharaoh's motives. Pharaoh wants to make sure the people don't multiply any further. That idea of multiplying is repeated all through this chapter. Death could not stop them from multiplying. Now, Pharaoh thinks he can do what death could not do. He will stop them from multiplying. Behold, let's deal shrewdly lest they multiply. You see, multiplication was God's command to his people from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. But this king of Egypt thinks that he can stop it from happening. By saying to them, be barren, stay close, and keep your numbers small, he thinks he can take the place of God who said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This king makes himself the enemy of the only true God. And he executes his rage on the people of God. He is jealous of God's blessing. He is afraid of not holding on to it. He is afraid of what he has to lose. And he believes he has no resort but to deal shrewdly, to attack these people at the core of their calling. How does this apply for us? Friends, fear God, not your circumstances no matter how assailed you are by enemies. Enemies will assail you, but don't fear them. Fear God. Now, this Pharaoh, this king of Egypt, he was a real human person who lived and acted in a time and place in history. But when he did those things, he did them as a picture of the true accuser of God's people is a picture of Satan, the ultimate prince of darkness, in whose shadow Pharaoh dwells. 
And Satan wants to take you out of the picture. But remember, when we think about the ultimate prince of darkness, Satan, please remember, he is only a creature. Satan is a fallen angel. He is not a demigod. Satan, too, is insecure, afraid, and sneaky. The Bible nowhere says that Satan is all-powerful. He is just a pawn in the hands of our Father God. The Bible nowhere says that Satan is present everywhere. He's a fallen angel. We see angels coming and going, and they can't be over here because they're over here, and this takes place all over, all over the Bible. Satan's limited to being in one place at a time, sowing seeds of illusion and discord. And friends, the Bible nowhere says that Satan is all-knowing. Only God is all-knowing. We have no reason to believe that Satan can invade your mind, read your thoughts, plant ideas, predict the future, or destroy you from within. Unless... You refuse the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit and you invite Satan and his minions to take up residence within you. I'm not denying the possibility of demon possession. That's a very real thing. But I do think that most Christians give Satan way too much credit. Which leads them to fear him or blame him much more than they ought. Yes, Satan prowls about like a lion. But in and of himself, he is ultimately powerless, frightened, and insecure when it comes to those who have been sealed for eternal life. Lion-like Satan cowers before the terrible, ferocious claws of the true Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. Satan is real. He is out to get us. But his weapons consist of deception. He can only have power over us if he can convince us that he has power over us. Or if God conscientiously delegates a bit of power to Satan so that Satan will help God accomplish his purposes. Let us not tremble at this mere prince of darkness. The light has come. Let us live as though we are in the daytime, having put on the armor of light. And so we tremble not for the prince of darkness. Now, how do we resist this ultimately impotent prince of darkness? We do it by training ourselves to recognize his tiresome tactics and to know what God will do in the end. So third, we can endure his rage. This is our third commitment Because the first way the world threatens to undo us is through the passing of time and the reality of death. The second way is through the agents of the the evil one. And then the third way is through the tactics of those evil people. The third way this world threatens to undo us is through the sneaky, corrupt, and abusive tactics of evil people who act in accord with Satan's deceptive designs. But you can endure when you remember that justice will always come back on their own heads. 
justice will prevail. Let me show you. First, let's see three tactics to destroy. Pharaoh pursues three tactics here. Remember, Pharaoh wants to keep the people in his land, and he wants to prevent them from multiplying. But God wants them to fill the earth and be fruitful in it. So Pharaoh, putting himself in the place of God, tries to exert power over God's people. Power over their growth and their increase. Power over life and death. And Pharaoh's first tactic is to oppress Israel's sons. The three tactics to destroy it. Number one is to oppress Israel's sons. Verses 11 through 14. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Raamses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Notice the bitter spiral in this chapter. In verses 9 and 10, this all began with Pharaoh's fear of the people multiplying. So his answer in verse 11 is to afflict them with heavy burdens, have them build cities. But you see what happens in verse 12? It doesn't work. More oppression yields greater multiplication. Which then leads, in verse 12, to even greater fear, dread on the part of the Egyptians. So in verse 13, they become even more ruthless in their affliction. And they begin this cycle of oppression that moves in and around itself. They're afraid, so they oppress but that yields more multiplication, which makes them more afraid. So they oppress harder, and they multiply even more, and they get even more afraid. And it's just this bitter cycle. Pharaoh picks this fight, and yet he doesn't yet realize how God will end it. His first tactic is to oppress Israel's sons. Pharaoh's second tactic is to murder Israel's sons. Murder Israel's sons. We see this in verses 15 through 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So if your goal is to stop the multiplication, lest they join your enemies and fight against you and leave the land, what better way to do that than to murder the sons at birth? The nation will lose its strength. They will never be able to join your enemies because they will not have a generation of young men to become soldiers and fight against you and escape from the land. But... 
It doesn't work for a few reasons. In 17, the main reason is because these midwives fear God and they don't obey Pharaoh. You see, it's worth it to fear God instead of fearing the agents of the evil one. And Pharaoh wanted to deal shrewdly with the people. So what we see in verses 18 and 19 is the midwives deal shrewdly with Pharaoh in their answer to his question of why did you do this? You see, turnabout is fair play. And this is a picture of what is to come later in the book. And you heard the result. Verse 20, God deals well with the midwives. Verse 21, God grows their families. But right in between those two statements, at the end of verse 20, we get this statement that the people multiplied and grew very strong. So once again, Pharaoh's tactic produces a result opposite to his intention. So what now? It didn't work to oppress the sons. And it didn't work to murder the sons. So Pharaoh's third tactic is to drown Israel's sons. Let's drown them. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So if you can't call the midwives to your cause, just do it yourself. Mandate a mass infanticide from all your people. And the chapter just ends there, leaving us, and the next verse goes on to another episode, another tells us what happened, but the chapter leaves us wondering whether this tactic will work. Will Pharaoh finally kill off the people and bring an end to God's promises? Or, as we've been led to believe, will they just keep multiplying against all the odds? These are Pharaoh's three tactics to destroy. Oppress, murder, and drown. So letter B, we move on and we see three stages of destruction. Because in this passage, in in Exodus chapter 1, we see a hint of Pharaoh's destiny. I mentioned this before. The one who deals shrewdly with the Hebrews has the Hebrew midwives deal shrewdly with him. So what he tried to do gets done back to him. And that's a hint of what's to come because the first large section of Exodus has more of the same to offer. Pharaoh, here in chapter 1, he takes Israel through a series of cycles of fear and oppression. And so God is going to do the same thing back to Pharaoh. Here's how he does it. Let me preview the next section of the book for you. You see, Pharaoh sought to oppress the sons of Israel. So when we get to chapters 7 through 10 of Exodus, God will oppress Pharaoh and his people through a long, long cycle of plagues that make their lives bitter and ruthlessly make them work with hard service. Pharaoh, secondly, he sought to murder the sons of Israel. So in chapters 11 to 13 of Exodus, God will murder all the firstborn sons of Egypt. From the son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and even the firstborn of their cattle. And Pharaoh's third tactic was to drown the sons. So when we get to chapters 14 and 15, 
God will drown Pharaoh and all the mightiest of Egypt's sons by hurling them into the Red Sea and causing them to sink like lead. Why does Exodus 1 set up the narrative this way? Exodus 1 is showing us something about how God's justice works. Why do we need to see how evil Pharaoh is before we can see how powerful and glorious God is in the rest of the book? Let me end with this. Letter C. Cosmic justice and divine irony. God must allow these things to happen in order to give him the opportunity to deliver his people with a mighty hand. Only when it becomes clear that nobody can rescue them and that they cannot even rescue themselves, then it finally becomes clear just what sort of a God we are dealing with. This is not a God to be trifled with. This is not a God that you can tame or predict. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He is a God who will enact justice. Evildoers will always be caught in the end. The evil that Pharaoh does to God's people will come right back on Pharaoh. And it will be done to him. How does this apply for us? I have two closing applications for you. First, remember and expect are the two applications. Remember and expect. First, remember God always gets what he wants. God always gets what he wants. Remember that. Even when it seems like everything is falling apart and you're being attacked on all sides, God will have the last laugh. God will execute justice in the earth. Remember, God always gets what he wants. And second, expect to have enemies. Expect to have enemies. We all like to be liked. And we love to be loved. But we cannot live in total peace and security while Satan roams the earth. But when we come face to face with evil and oppression and fallenness, how can we keep our hope? When enemies abound and attempts are being made to destroy us and to destroy the work of God, how do we endure such rage? The main point of Exodus 1 is that the sons of God have many enemies, but none of them can prevent God's promises from being fulfilled. And we know that is true because... The true Son of God, the ultimate Son of God, came. His name was Jesus. He did everything right, exactly as his Father commanded, and yet he had many enemies lined up against him. If he had many enemies, how do you think you'll get away with having no enemies? He had many enemies who sought to oppress him, undermining his ministry, asking him questions to ensnare him, arresting him and mistreating him. They murdered him for no reason other than to get him out of their way. And they tried to drown him. They tried to strangle the vine he had planted to take over the world. Jesus had many enemies 
and he faced death itself. But God's promises, God's promise to save his people from their sins could not be thwarted. There were some, including Satan, who thought they could sneakily oppose God, but what was really happening was that God was sneakily opposing them. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8 say that we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, God was being sneaky when Jesus died on the cross. And he brought justice in the earth. In closing, the sons of God may have many enemies. This world is filled with devils, but let us commit together. We will not fear death. We tremble not for the prince of darkness. And we can endure his rage. There will be justice in the earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are God and nobody can stand against you. You will have your way with us. You will have your way with the world. Please help us to trust you. Help us not to fear when we face this world with devils filled and though it threatens to undo us. Lord, we ask that your truth would triumph through us and you would give us the eyes of faith to see your justice on the horizon that will come. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.